As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. Hello, welcome to the Athletic Football Tactics podcast, where each week the Athletic's sharpest footballing minds and deepest thinkers join me, Ali Maxwell, to discuss the trends, the data and the tactical systems behind the biggest footballing stories. I'm joined today by the Athletic's tactics writer, Michael Cox, and football analytics writer, Mark Kerry. But also, last week, we spoke to the brilliant James Horncastle, who guided us through Italy and Serie A, and as promised, now we are on to Spain. The Spanish football writer for The Athletic, Dermot Corrigan, will help us make sense of what's happening in La Liga this season. We'll speak to Dermot in just a bit. First, hello to the regulars. Mark Carey, I think I can start calling you that now. It's your fifth appearance on the podcast but we can't ignore what they're whispering about in the media circles that Warville's departure to Leipzig opens up your own pathway to more frequent appearances more regular minutes on the podcast of course with great opportunity comes pressure to perform how are you doing yeah good thanks I think it's one of those it's like the king is dead long live the king (laughs) (laughs) whereby we haven't even had time to to mourn Tom's uh, departure but I'll uh, I'll certainly try and do my best to to fill his his shoes in the, at least the short term. And excitingly, it's been confirmed, Mark, who the Athletic have hired to fill Tom's boots, John Muller, who I think we're all very excited to be working with. Yeah, delighted to, to be joined by by John. He's uh, He's been in the office already, had a, some great chats with him and hopefully he'll be able to come on the podcast soon as well. I think he's certainly interested in, in doing more and more of that. But uh, I think, yeah, one step at a time, let's get him all set up and ready to go first. But um, he's got a really good, interesting piece that's coming out very soon as well. So look out for that. Many of the listeners will know him from the Space, Space, Space newsletter, which he has been running, writing some fascinating stuff around data and its use within football. Welcome, John. I'm sure we'll be speaking to him soon. Michael, how are you doing this week? I'm very well, thank you. Enjoying this international break. I think this is a fun one because stuff is happening. Teams are qualifying. Teams are going out. Uh, Could also give a shout out to lad called Jack, who I met at Royston 1, (laughs) Kingstonian 1 on uh, Saturday afternoon. He came over and said hello and uh, was very complimentary about you as well, Ali. um, Was he really? Yep. Interesting. I was surprised as well, but there you go. (laughs) 
<laughs> Shout out, Jack. Uh, not exactly a quiet week for you on the writing front, though, Michael. You decided to uh, write about, that's right, uh, falsehoods surrounding the playing style of English football's most successful football manager, Sir Alex Ferguson. <laughs> the article titled, Don't Judge Solskjaer on Fergie's Attacking Philosophy. It didn't really exist. Where did this one come from? Well, it came from watching all the punditry over the last two or three years about Manchester United, I suppose. I mean, to be honest, one of our editors actually asked, you know, have you ever written an article about the the players who played under Ferguson at Manchester United and, and how they haven't really been successful as managers? And I thought, well, maybe the more interesting thing is actually the style, considering we've heard so much about this, you know, Solskjaer has, has been accustomed to the attacking style of play at Manchester United. And when you think about it, I mean, none of them really have been renowned for their attacking football. I think Ryan Giggs probably is a bit of an exception. I think what he's done at Wales, he's clearly incorporated more attacking players than they were used to under Chris Coleman. But the rest of them, I think, have been quite defensive and tried to grind out wins as as I think Manchester United did uh, for a lot of time in 1990. So, yep, that's up on the site now. And also there's an article today about um, the second phase of set pieces. I think a lot of... Um, a lot of goals have come from that in this season's Premier League so far, where the defending team clears the first ball to the edge of the box, has another cross into the box, and then there's a goal. It just seems quite a chaotic situation, quite difficult to defend. There's no mm. real set strategy for it. So had a look at that as well. Brilliant. That's all on the Athletic site for your reading pleasure. Time to welcome Dermot Corrigan to the podcast. Dermot, how are you? How's things in Spain? Hey, everybody. Yeah, pretty good. Um, pretty fun international break for Spain as well. Um, was down to Seville to see them against Sweden, which was fun. First time I've been to Kartuka, the, the quite odd stadium uh, down in Seville. They have two really good stadiums in the city that they could play games in, but they play in the, the third athletic stadium. Um, but it was it was fun and, and Spain got through, so it was, it was a good weekend. Uh, of course, La Cartuja was where Spain played Sweden in their first Euro 2020 group stage game. Now, that's only five months ago. And I think I'm right in saying they were somewhat booed and whistled uh, during that game. The the home fans not pleased with what they saw from Luis Enrique and his team in that game. But fast forward five months, it has been a roller coaster for the Spanish national team and, and for Luis Enrique. And this week they qualified for the World Cup next year in Qatar. It feels like from that moment on, Dermot, public approval rating for Luis Enrique has been on a, a pretty steady incline. Yeah, like Luis Enrique is such a, an interesting character. He, he's not well liked around Real Madrid, um, which meant that he wasn't so well liked by a, a, quite a big portion of, of the Spanish fans, the Spanish media as well. He's he's not somebody who courts the media, it's fair to say. Um, so that all built into the, the reception that they got Morata as well, who's such a another kind of interesting character. He was whistled during the Euros. But suddenly Spain kind of came from nowhere or this new Spain team came together to play, you know, they're capable of like some fantastic football, you know, maybe you can reach peaks that that other international teams or or very few international teams can reach, but they're also capable of like chaotic, shambolic defending, missing penalties, you know, getting into into awful mess. So they're they're kind of fun team to watch. They're a young team. So it's been fun. And, And along the way, somehow they've kind of caught... Not, I wouldn't say everybody is behind Luis Enrique and he, at this stage. He still has a some anti-Luis Enriqueistas around, but his his name was being chanted at the stadium at the end of the game on Sunday. There was a, they did a lap of honor. It was kind of weird because before the game, Spain were were kind of in trouble. You know, if they if they lost, they were into the playoffs, which is going to be be tough. But there was still a kind of party atmosphere, Mexican wave in the stadium. A lot of younger fans, different fans, maybe similar for other countries that your your typical Spain fan is different is different from your typical La Liga fan. Um, 
So partly I was wondering, do they understand what's uh, what's at stake here or, or what's going on? But by the end, everybody w- was happy and there was a, a bit of a party at La Cartuja. Michael, I, I read Dermot's brilliant piece breaking down Spain's qualification for the World Cup. And I, I mean, despite using a scarcely believable 43 different players across his eight qualifying matches, it, it also, I got the sense that he is attempting to and getting quite close to achieving the sort of style of play, tactical identity that's difficult for international managers to achieve. But Enrique's really going for it despite uh, such chopping and changing of personnel. How would you characterise their their tactical style? Yeah, it's funny with the personnel. I mean, I think he has chopped and changed probably too much, but I think it does speak, you know, it does say something about the kind of quality Spain have. I think they've got a lot of depth compared to other national teams, but they maybe don't have that many standout players. I mean, really, who are the real world-class players in this Spain side? Probably fewer than 10 years ago, 15 years ago, 20 years ago. And therefore, I don't think there's many players who absolutely command a place in the side. But you're right, despite that chopping and changing, there is a, a clear style. I mean, I think it's, to, to, to generalise a bit, it's very Spanish. It feels very Spanish when you watch it. I mean, when Enrique took over at Barcelona... I thought his style of football there was was considerably more direct, really, than the, the style that Guardiola had played. I think there was more emphasis on getting the, the ball quickly to the forwards on the run. But, I mean, when I've seen them in this qualification process, they've been incredibly patient with the ball. Um, I saw the game against Sweden, the 1-0 win that, that took them through. Uh, I thought there was a real lack of penetration there. Um, you know, they had so much of the ball, they didn't create many chances. It's maybe not a fair game to judge on because at the end of the day, they did need a draw. Um, and therefore, playing out a, a fairly tame nil-nil almost felt like their priority. In the end, they got a slightly fortunate winner. Um, they're a funny team. I, I never fancied them to score more than twice against the Minnows. And yet, when it comes to the big games against good sides, um, I think they are well suited to that challenge. I mean, that semi-final against Italy in the summer, I thought they were the better side and very unlucky to lose that. Um on penalties, obviously. Um, so yeah, they're they're a funny side. I think there's there's some areas of concern. I I, I never really fancied the centre back partnership. I think they always look a bit uncomfortable covering space in the channels. There were a few mistakes in the last couple of games in terms of playing out from the back. Um, I know there's been a suggestion that the midfield is is often formatted in a bit of a cautious way, um, which is interesting with with. Uh, Gavi and Pedri now on offer, mm. uh, the two young Barcelona lads, but I'm not sure they'll play together uh, in the same team for the foreseeable future. So, yeah, they're a funny team. I think of all the, of all the teams, you know, going forward to the World Cup um, from UEFA, I think they'll maybe be the most interesting side in a tactical sense. But I'm still not, haven't been completely convinced by them in this qualification process. We'll certainly be talking about Gavi and Pedri later on. And Luis Enrique has, what, about exactly a year now to, to whittle down 43 to 23 or maybe 26. I'm not sure how big the squads can be in next year's World Cup. Uh, and we will be keeping a close eye on that. But next, it's time to dive into La Liga. We'll be talking, amongst other things, about Vinicius Jr. and Ancelotti's Real Madrid uh, with Dermot next. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. 
Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Dermot, if, if we may, let's start our La Liga analysis with the state of play at the top of the division. Uh, because it, it's notable to me that we have Real Sociedad, top of the league, and Real Madrid and Sevilla, a point behind. Both of those teams have played a game fewer than La Real. Uh, we're talking about Ancelotti's Real Madrid in more depth later on. So uh, could you talk me through how Real Sociedad and Sevilla have put themselves among the early pace setters? Super open La Liga this year. Barca are in crisis. I guess we'll get to them. Madrid, definitely in transition. And Atletico have been leaking goals, which we might talk about as well, that it's not the kind of machine Atletico for sure that, that people might have expected. So La Real have taken advantage. And they are the really interesting team because just have a piece up on the site today uh, on the Athletic about a Xavi Alonso. We went to um, to to talk to him and talk to some other people in the the La Real youth system at Subiada there about how they bring through. And most of the squad, like eighteen of the squad, I think, have come through the youth system there. There's a lot of of young local Basque players who they've developed. The coach as well, Imanol Alguacil. He was a former B team coach, former D team player. Everything is it's very kind of in house. People, you know, at that Bilbao where the the standout Basque team that everybody kind of knows about at this stage that they use all Basque players. Lariada, they open up a bit wider. They, they take in, like they have Isaac playing up front, they have David Silva in, in midfield, but they still have a real local core and a real kind of all-together kind of ethos. And they don't have standout stars at all either. A lot of the team players can come in and out, but they play good football. Um, Imanol has them really well organised at the back. Last season, they used to, um, they conceded too many goals. This season, they've, they've been very tight at the back, kept a lot of clean sheets. And they've been the, the most impressive team so far. They're not they're not super exciting to watch. They're not super entertaining. A lot of their games are are one nil, two nil. Um, but they're they're getting the job done and winning the win the title is going to be difficult for them. But um, they've a really good chance of making it into the Champions League, which is going to make it mean that another team, and again Barcelona, might might struggle to get into mm. the top four. Michael, it doesn't escape me that that last season, early on, I think probably nine or ten games in, we did a whole podcast on the uh, fast starters, the overachievers, I think we we framed it as, across Europe. And we spoke about Real Sociedad having started the season very well in Spain. Yeah, it was 26 points from their first 13 games uh, last season. It's 28 this time around, so they're two up on last year. Um, Yeah, they're an interesting side. I mean might become a bit of a theme of this podcast, but a little bit like Spain, they, they've chopped and changed quite a lot in terms of the lineups. That they're sometimes quite difficult to to keep up with who's going to play. Um, a bizarre statistic I found that is that they've scored 19 goals in the league this season. No one has got more than one assist. So there's no real prime source of creativity, as you might expect for a side with David Silver in the ranks. They're really sharing it around, but um, and they're kind of sharing the goals around as well. I mean, Alexander Izak, had an incredible season last last time out. Um, 17 goals in the league. He's not really been firing on all cylinders so far this time around. I thought he was pretty pretty tame in that game against Spain as well the other day, actually. But um, yeah, they're, they're an interesting side. Good to, maybe not as good to watch as, as some of the other uh, sides in La Liga, but they are, as Dermot says, they get the job done. And the thing I always find interesting when I watch Real Sociedad's home games is 
job they've done with that ground. I know it's a bit off topic, but I went there when there was a massive running track around the edge and now it's been converted into a really nice, tight, proper football ground. It just feels like a completely different arena. Hmm. Mark, the big question uh, about uh, surprise fast starters, surprise pace setters is, is it sustainable? What can the numbers tell us about that? Yeah, I think it's it's one of those when they say about sort of if you're actually going to have mounted realistic challenge for the league that you have to have first and foremost a strong defence. Um, and as Dermot said, that's certainly what they've done and what they've got in the early parts of the season. I think they've only conceded 10 goals all season. Um, I know they've, only, they've played a game more than um, some others around them, but that's the third best defensive record in, in La Liga, which is similar form to, to what they had at the early parts of, of last season as well. It's just, I guess, a case of sustaining it now. But at the other end, as you say, they're the sort of sharing the, the goals around, but I think that they need to keep uh, Mikel Oyarzabal uh, fit. I think he's got a muscle injury at the moment, I believe. Dem will be able to tell me better, but um, he's he's their leading scorer at the moment. And I think he's taken three penalties uh, so far this season, but he actually has the best expected goals per 90 of any player in La Liga at the moment. Mm. So 0.77 per 90. So that's the sort of rate. He was getting chances of three goals every four games. Probably unsustainable, still very <laughs> early days. But even if you take the, the penalties out of that, he's still got a, a rate of about 0.45 non-penalty expected goals. So we're kind of a one in two rate. So I think if they're going to mount a challenge, they need to keep him fit. Uh, and what about that team locked on points with Real Madrid, Dermot, Sevilla? You were in the city this week. How excited are Sevilla fans about their start to the season? Sevilla fans are in a weird place at the minute because last year, under Lopetegui, in his first season, they, they won the, the Europa League. Second season, they put in quite a decent title challenge. They were never really top of the table, but they were up until three or four games towards the end of the season. They were at Real Madrid and, and drew a, a real game they, they might have won and that would have put them back into it. So this year, everybody was like, OK, we're set. They brought in Thomas Delaney, uh, Eric Lamella, you know, experienced players, not guys who, you know, um, from Seville's point of view, we're thinking like we could win stuff with these guys. Mm. Champions League campaign has not gone well at all. Delaney has been a bit of a, well, I was going to say disaster, but he's just been involved in a lot of unfortunate incidents, getting sent off, giving away penalties. Um, Lamella has scored a couple of goals, but not done much. And he keeps chopping and changing as well, Lopetegui. But having said that, they're still right up there in La Liga because it is such a such a unusual La Liga season so far. They've been grinding out results. I haven't been to, to the Sanchez Pizjuan this season to, to see them. I've, I've just caught some of the games on the TV. But they're they're kind of well positioned without causing any waves, without doing too much, making too much excitement. I think that they're sticking in there and they're definitely looking well for top four. And I guess it depends whether one of the, the big teams can get their act together, whether Madrid maybe can can pull away. Because if if 80 points is enough to win La Liga this season, then Sevilla have a decent chance of getting there, I think. I promise I'm not just going to read off kind of assist stats throughout this podcast, but Sevilla have scored 21 goals. Navas has got two assists and no one else has got more than one. Don't really understand how this is possible, <laughs> what's going on. Spain used to be full of prolific assisters. How are they sharing it around to this extent? Remarkable. <laughs> I love this statistic chat already. This is great. Um, I think Sevilla are, and Dim, again, you'll be able to sort of correct me if I'm wrong here, but they are, they do have a good foundation in defence first and foremost. And I think it was similar last season. I think you and I might have done a piece together, which they're not going to be able to compete with the likes of Barcelona and Real Madrid from an attacking sense. But Madrid and Barcelona have also leaked goals at the back. But it seems like they are just kind of ticking along and just keeping those those wins quite tight or the results quite tight. And it's it's first and foremost built upon a strong foundation in defence. 
they have that that triangle of uh, Kunde and Diego Carlos, the centre back, and Fernando in front of them, which is really important. For Kunde had a weird summer because he wanted to go to Chelsea. Um, probably would have gone to Chelsea if Chelsea had paid what what Sevilla were looking for. There was a little bit of Barney between the two clubs, kind of pointing fingers at, at who was to blame. But he didn't go on strike, but wasn't wasn't fully mentally there for the first couple of weeks of the season. But he's come back in. Diego Carlos went through a bit of a dip in form, and he's come back. And Fernando's just been been amazing for Sevilla. He's been you know one of the best players in La Liga over the last couple of years, and he's super important to them. And um, just kind of holds them together in the midfield. So they do have that that solid basis. And at full back, they've been been. It's really good as well. Acuna is one of the most creative players in the team. Lopetegui is a, he's a very kind of functional coach. It's a very machine-like type of a Sevilla team. And in what Michael's saying there as well, and similar, I really saw said the police has come in and out. You could, it's very difficult to predict what the Sevilla lineup is going to be. Um, and Asiri got injured, which is a blow to them. Maybe that's why they haven't scored as many goals. And he's a kind of streaky player as well. But it, they've been kind of rolling with the punches and they've been doing enough to, to stay in there. Um, again, we'll see maybe in January they might look to, to bring in another striker. Let's talk to Luke de Jong coming back from Barcelona, which might solve a couple of problems at, at, at different ends. But um, yeah, it, it's just wide open. And if Seville are going to, you know, win La Liga I think it's the 1930s the last time that, that they've won La Liga title it's a, it's a super opportunity for them and if they get knocked out of the Champions League maybe that clears the way as well I'm not sure that they want that to happen but but it might it might be a help in, in that way Well of course Real Madrid are, are lurking amongst them they are the current favourites for the league title their odds at the moment imply a 64% probability at this point uh, Michael Ancelotti back in the dugout at the Bernabeu how's he setting them up tactically this time around? I mean, it's very Ancelotti, I would say. It's 4-3-3. The players are roughly in the expected positions. I don't think there's been any significant revolution, although there has been a change at centre-back with, with Ramos and, and Varane leaving. Uh, David Oliver's come in there. I guess maybe he's the interesting one in terms of, you know, you could field him in various positions, but Ancelotti's gone for him at centre-back. Um, but yeah, the midfield's very familiar and they're kind of looking for individual magic from the forwards. I mean, Vinicius has, has stepped up this season, but Benzema is uh, doing the kind of Messi-esque thing of leading the league in both goals and assists. And mm-hmm. um, yeah, we've, we've spoken about Benzema before, I think. But uh, yeah, he is in the form of his life. You know, since since Ronaldo left, he's stepped up a level. And I think now, if he wasn't already talked about in these terms, I have to consider him one of the best players in the world. I'd say not. it's not a particularly kind of structured or uh, methodical team, but he's just in fantastic form. Yeah, 10 goals, I think, in, in La Liga this season already. Um, and I think as at the team level, I think, as you say, Michael, they are kind of relying on individuals. And if they've got players in the, the ilk of, of Benzema, they can rely on them because they are such quality players, especially in, in their finishing. And they, they are running a little bit hot at the moment in terms of their, their statistics side of things. So in terms of their expected goals and their goals scored, they've actually scored uh, just over eight more goals than they should have based on the, the chances that they found themselves in. And I think they've also, at the other end as well, just conceded ever so slightly fewer than you would expect, um, again, considering the chances that they've conceded. So running a little bit fortunate, their underlying numbers maybe aren't as strong as maybe their their actual goals scored and conceded. But um, yeah, I mean, they'll be very grateful for that, but it's just whether or not that will continue. The, the feeling around Madrid, um, talking to a couple of people around the squad for a piece of doing on Eden Hazard, which is coming out soon, and also being at the stadium, couple of weeks ago the fans were whistling them you know that they've been winning games 1-0 the Classico going into the Classico Ancelotti was coming under a bit of pressure you know they lost to Sheriff in 
in Europe. They lost at Espanyol. They weren't scoring many goals. They're so reliant on Benzema and Vinicius, but it, it's kind of individual or uh, the, that, that partnership more than anything else, more than the, the team structure or the team is doing really well. So Ancelotti might have been under more pressure if Barca weren't you know, falling apart and taking away the, the focus. And the, the teams around Madrid... Well, you know, people kind of just assume. You know, it's interesting that Ali says as well that they're they're super favourites to win the title. That's almost because everybody's like, well, it's, it's not going to be a vintage season. Madrid are going to kick into gear. They have Modric and they have Cruz and they have the, these players, um, which you know is probably they're probably right. It is the most likely thing to happen. But it, it's not. There's not a sense of excitement around Madrid at the moment, or a feeling that Ancelotti mm. has done. You know, has come in with a, a new plan that he's going to shake things up, or they're in transition, but they're not sure where they're they're trying to get to, or they're they're still kind of waiting for Mbappe maybe to to arrive, and we'll see whether that happens or not. But um, again, that opens it up for for if it's Real Sociedad or Sevilla or, or somebody else to, to to come through. That's really interesting in terms of those two high-performing individuals at the top of the pitch. I mean, we discussed Benzema and his whole career the other week in depth. He's having a remarkable season, uh, particularly given his longevity at the very top level that he can still perform at this level. Uh, how about Vinicius Jr.? I'm really interested to, to know what your take on him is, Dermot, because only Benzema has scored more goals in the whole of La Liga than Vinicius. And for someone who's been at Real Madrid for a few years, but of course from such a young age. Is this now him making the leap to becoming one of the top players in his position, which was kind of what he was always anointed for upon his move to Real Madrid? Yeah, it's a total mystery, really. Like Myself and Mark looked at it as well. I looked at the figures and his XG was was well up on, um, or he was scoring a lot more than he, he was supposed to, really based on the chances that he had. And speaking to people around the, the squad as well you know it's not it's just like a click that he used to get into great positions he had all the the talent he was a super entertaining dribbler um you know really really entertaining player to watch but didn't have that end product and then suddenly this season he started the season on the bench Hazard and Bale were the, the starting wingers for the first game of the season for, for Ancelotti then Vinicius comes off the bench scores two goals scores two brilliant goals in Levante when Madrid are, are in trouble and end up drawing the game three all and his confidence is just through the roof. And suddenly, the those kind of the ability that he had, you could always see that hey, naturally he was supernaturally talented. But he's put it together, and you know some of the some of the flicks, some of the understanding with, with Benzema as well, because the, there was an idea, which I guess it's turned out to be unfair, that he wasn't the um, just he didn't have the same understanding of the game that the players like Benzema and Cruz and Modric have. And so sometimes you'd see it in the stadium. There'd be everybody would be throwing their hands up in desperation kind of they'd be he'd run the wrong way or he'd give the wrong pass or he'd shoot when he wasn't supposed to this season he's just not doing that um Ancelotti has it's not it's a typical Ancelotti thing it's not like a master stroke that he's he's done loads of individual work with him on the training ground in a kind of Guardiola or, or Klopp type of way he, he's given him confidence he's, he's made him more relaxed um which you know these kind of intangible things that Ancelotti seems to bring to to a club and you know it for him, anyway, it's working. For some of the other players in the team, not so much. But, but Vinicius, you know, from Madrid's point of view, long may it last because without him and without Benzema, they're really going to be in trouble. Uh, yeah, I agree. I think it is a, a confidence thing. I think it comes from playing regularly as well. And I think sometimes it is just a, a bit of luck in all senses of the word. And I don't know if I'm being a massive cynic here because he is a Brazilian player who's capable of these flicks. But I think that I feel that second goal against Levante where he flicked it, I didn't know whether that was a cross 
and it actually <laughs> crept in at the far post. But that's by the by. But but just to sort of pin some um, some numbers to that, as I say, uh, or as Dermot said, that we did do a, a piece together looking at this this change and. Essentially, for the past sort of three seasons or the previous three seasons at Real Madrid, he was his expected goals was kind of hovering around 0.3 per 90. So he was essentially getting chances worthy of a goal every three games. But his actual output in that period was at about 0.2 goals per 90. So he was scoring at a rate of a one every five games. So you can see that he was underperforming quite significantly over those three seasons and that sort of adds up over time but he's actually scored just over three goals above expectation this season so you can just see for whatever reason it's just as as Dermot said whether that's confidence playing more regularly he's just he's scoring uh, and performing above expectation having previously underperformed so that difference looks even more because of where he's sort of come from in previous seasons. I certainly playing with confidence. I just this morning before we recorded uh, saw him perform a successful rainbow flick in the cor- uh, by the corner flag in their game against Argentina last night. Yeah, I, I didn't stay up to watch this, but it's exactly what I expect from Brazil against Argentina. Di Maria doing a nutmeg, Vinicius doing a rainbow flick, but the game ending nil nil with quite a lot of bookings. <laughs> It certainly it certainly sounds like he is benefiting from uh, Carlo Ancelotti's pure vibes approach. Uh, we're interested now in the in the approach that Xavi Hernandez will take as manager of FC Barcelona. Uh, of course, the, the news breaking a, a few weeks ago, his first game in charge will be against Espanyol this weekend. At Barcelona just one win in their last six in La Liga, ninth in the table, uh, but the bad vibes banished for the moment at least. Um, it, it seems to me that there is a genuine and large sense of excitement around this appointment from pretty much all angles uh, bar perhaps the Real Madrid media. Yeah, it's super. There's a lot of excitement to see uh, amongst us anyway, I think to see what is his first 11 is going to be because Barca have a lot of players and um, some of them have been out of favour and um, Kuman was getting a lot of a lot of hassle over his uh, tactical selections, who he was playing, who he wasn't playing, the, the style of play. The idea that the hope amongst all the this the Barcelona fans, the illusion that, that they have is that he's going to be able to come in and, and maybe wave a bit of a magic wand or some Javi dust and, and suddenly everything um is fine again. His his presentation w- was super strange. It was almost like he was presented like a new superstar signing. Mm. It was 10,000 people at the camp now that the fans were, were singing. Laporta looked really happy. He was kind of joining in the singing. Um, the, those Madrid kind of cynical people here were were pointing out you know it looks like they've won a trophy or something or you know they've only won one in six they're down in ninth why are they also so happy and and that's true but Barca needed a they needed some kind of change some some kind of excitement some shot of adrenaline and enthusiasm and excitement through the club so we'll see tough game against Espanyol a local derby Espanyol are doing pretty well going into the game level on points with, with Barca in the table which doesn't always happen and then they've got to play Benfica on Tuesday which is uh you know kind of like a must win for them in the Champions League or, or they could be out of it so whether that wave of excitement is going to carry them through those two games is going to be super interesting to see I'm going to both of them and really looking forward to it I noticed from your pieces on the appointment and his initial statements that more so than phrases around tactical philosophy and playing style and, and being, as you wrote, sort of positioning himself as the direct heir to former Barcelona players and, and the coaches, of course, in Pep Guardiola and, and Johan Cruyff. What stood out to me was quotes that seemed more like a head teacher than a philo- football philosopher. Words like order and rules and demands, very much the order of the day in those sort of initial statements. 
Yeah, it, it was a bit like Martin O'Neill had come into a club and, and was like, we, you know, we we have to uh, sort out the dressing room. Everybody's got to arrive on time. We, we've got to be, yeah, follow the rules. You know, there's got, he's put in fines for when players show up late. Uh, PK, who's, you know, has his second career as a, as a Elon Musk type uh, business businessman, is, uh, you know, he, he's going to find that has been cut down a lot. I mean, that's a bit unfair on PK actually to to be comparing him to Elon Musk. But uh, you know, as a, a social media entrepreneur, a, a guy who, who's who says that he plays football in the morning and then goes to to work in the office in the afternoon, that type of idea is obviously just cu- cutting the floor out from it completely. And he did. He kind of referenced Guardiola. Um, I think it might have been one of the questions, but he went along with it that when Guardiola took over as Barcelona coach, um, that famous uh, training camp in St Andrews back in two thousand and eight, and you know. It was time for Ronaldinho to go. It was time for a much more serious approach to, to football. And the idea, I guess, is that if you follow the rules and if you, you follow the system and you do everything right, then it, the effect of that is that the team plays really good football on the pitch and everybody knows their job. They're, they're well-drilled. They're well-trained. Again, that's the, the word out of the Barca dressing room over the last couple of years is that it has been a little bit slack, that standards have dropped, that the senior players were able to get away with, with too much. Now, Javi... Now those senior players are his friends, they're his former teammates, there's people he, he's won a lot with. So he was pretty well, indirectly or directly signaling them and going like this isn't this has to stop, things have to improve. Mm-hmm. So again, that that dynamic is something we're going to be looking at on, on the side over the next couple of weeks. And it's something to you know, could think things could go really well, but also you can see the the possibility for friction and for strife. And Barcelona is a place where you know, friction and strife and infighting and leaking and double speak, all that kind of stuff is comes second nature to a lot of people. So it's going to mm. be, um, yeah, it's going to keep me busy, I think, over the next couple of weeks. <laughs> Barcelona are the, the, the gift that keeps giving for, for everybody, I think. Martin O'Neill and Elon Musk mentioned in the same <laughs> in the same answer. I, I couldn't be happier about that. Michael, there's clearly a strong sense of nostalgia, excitement mixed with nostalgia for that all-conquering Barcelona side of, of Pep Guardiola with Xavi, perhaps, his, his most important player not named Messi. You've written about this appointment and, and in particular about how the very nature of that team's success and their style of play and therefore their legacy in the wider football game might make it harder for Xavi to recreate things uh, in the same way. Yeah, I mean, they've just had as much influence on football as I think any sides, arguably in football history. I mean, you can point to the great sides of the last 30, 40 years. You can look at the Ajax of total football. You can look at Saki's Milan. But I just think these days, because footage is broadcast around the world more than ever before because of the internet because of all the resources I think so many clubs have tried to copy that Barcelona Spain style of football and Xavi was I'd say the most influential player in all that so yeah it's not like he's going to come in and and start a possession football revolution because that's already been done but I'm excited to see how he does I mean uh, it's uh, obviously he's walking into a club that are at their lowest point for uh, a couple of decades but Hmm. I think I think there's actually a lot to work with there. I mean, Xavi, of course, was a midfielder. He's going to be all about the midfield. And he's still got great quality in that position. I mean, Busquets is is still a a pretty top player. Frankie de Jong has been spoken about um, repeatedly as maybe the next great, you know, almost slightly revolutionary player in terms of the way he interprets midfield roles. They've got some really good young players with, uh, with Pedri. Uh, with Gavi, there's uh, there's some good players who have come through the youth system, um, and I think uh, Nicolas Gonzalez as well looks a, a good little player. I think these are the kind of players that Xavi will want to be working with. 
Clearly, they need some individual quality in the final third, and it'll be a long time before they get over Messi. But because they don't have the great individuals, I think they need structure. I think they, they need organisation and a philosophy. And I think Xavi could be the uh, the man to bring it. Well, in order to work that out yourself for your article, you did watch a fair amount of his Al Saad side, who he managed in Qatar for the last few years. What did you take from watching Xavi's Al Saad? I mean, they are by far and away the, the richest club in, in that division and have quite the talent advantage over the rest of the league. But in terms of his tactical setup, what can you tell us? Well, they play a very aggressive system um, that he refers to as a 3-4-3 I'd say it's a little bit more complex than that because it's, the four in midfield is a box. So it's almost like 3-2-2-3. Three, two, two, three. Um, very attack-minded. Yeah, like you say, I mean, it's difficult really to... Because they're so dominant, they're going to be playing an aggressive system. I mean, they, they just have the ability to do that. They dominate possession in every game. And of course, part of that is Xavi's philosophy and part of it is just they've got better players and, and more wealth than any other side. But yeah, it has been interesting. Um Clearly, there's there's certain players in key positions that um, have a particular way of playing. The goalkeeper, whose name I've forgotten, sorry, was very two-footed. Uh, the centre-back seemed to be encouraged to really bring the ball forward, not just passing, but really dribbling into midfield. Um, and uh, then Santi Cazorla in midfield as well, which uh, helped make them look like a, a real top side. But uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm sure it will be different once he has a... Um, now he has a different group of players to be working with, but certainly the midfield worked. Uh, the way that worked was interesting with a with a kind of box uh, in that in that zone with three defenders and three attackers. So if he does something similar, that would be very exciting. He, he referenced that, or he was asked about that at his, his presentation last week at the press conference, and he did say that the the because playing three defenders is such a, a loaded kind of. There's been criticism of Coleman for playing too defensively, and. and he was asked, almost to try and catch him out, are you going to play like you did at Al-Sad and play three at the back? And he said, he kind of said not necessarily, but he, he said that Al-Sad is a completely different setup, that we are the dominant team, that um, we always had to just basically come up with a system to break everybody else down, that that was the, the plan, whereas at Barcelona it's going to have to be um, a more balanced and suggested that he play 4-3-3. And there was a good bit of talk that he's looking to bring in, um, or he wants to focus on anyway wingers, that, that he wants to, to play the... Uh, a four-three-three with two guys who stay wide, who stretch the play, uh, and that's been a big kind of focus. Maybe where they're looking to to sign somebody in January or to get Dembele fit and firing again, or maybe bring in somebody from the youth system. Again, it's going to be super interesting to see because he's got to go straight in at the weekend against Espanyol in a big game, and then against Benfica. So he doesn't have too much time to to come up with to reinvent the, the team. Really, it's just to to try to come up with some tweaks and, and to to make things work straight away. Mark, performance-wise, you know, what are the key areas that Xavi needs to improve straight away to get Barcelona picking up wins and moving up the table? Yeah, I think Dermot and, and Michael covered it well in terms of what, what kind of needs to change and what the resources are sort of there to, to work with at the moment. I think that one thing they don't need to, to really change is how much they hold on to the ball. They, they are the most dominant possession side in La Liga with uh, 66% possession on average, which is actually the highest of any team in the top five European leagues. So... Xavi will be pleased to know that they look after the ball. Um, so it's just working what they do, I guess, with the ball. And as Michael said, it's I think it's just having that bit more kind of penetration in attack and a bit more clinical. And as as Dermot said, Dembele's injured at the moment. Ansu Fati is, I don't know how long he's injured for, but I think he pulled up um, recently, has got a muscle injury. So I think they need to have a bit more kind of, yeah, be more clinical in attack. I think they've been a bit unlucky in defence as well. Uh, we spoke about it before with, with Real Madrid's difference. I think that they've, 
Barca have conceded three more goals more than they should have based on the quality of chances that they have conceded. Um, and they've conceded 15 goals already. And I actually dug into the, the numbers historically. And when Xavi was at the peak of his powers and so were Barcelona in the 2010-11 season, the whole of La, the La Liga season, they conceded just 21 goals that whole season and they conceded 15 already. So you can see that, I and mean, we were talking about one of the most historic teams of all time, but... You can see now that teams don't fear Barcelona quite as much and you can get at them in in defence. And I mean, they were 3-0 up against Celta Vigo in I think their most recent La Liga game and they ended up drawing 3-3. So that wouldn't have happened in Barca teams of old. So they need to get some fear factor back, I think, as well. Uh, Dermot, just desperate to hear a little bit about these uh, well, th- this this duo, Pedri and Gavi. Uh, uh, around the turn of the millennium, Xavi Hernandez himself broke into Barcelona's first team. Uh, and a few years later, Andres Iniesta joined him. They were an impossibly gifted, intelligent, technical duo. And together they, they won everything that they could possibly have won multiple times in the case of many of those competitions. Now, th- at the start of last season, Pedri was signed by Barcelona and began to establish himself at many comparisons to Andres Iniesta. And one year later, now Gavi has burst onto the scene for Barcelona. He's already got four Spain caps to his name in the last couple of months. So it strikes me you wait years for one diminutive, impossibly gifted, intelligent, technical midfielder. And in Barcelona's case, two tend to come along at, at once. They haven't played together that much yet due to Pedri's injury. I feel like a lot of Gavi's minutes came as a result of that. But are there discussions about how much they will play together once Pedri is fit and ready to play and how they might complement each other on the pitch both now and in the future? For sure. Like the the Gavi and Iniesta comparison has been made lots of times here as well. And it does, you're always wary of hyping up kids too much when they come into the team. But Pedri had an amazing year, you know, at the Euros he was phenomenal. And Gavi has just stepped in. Even more personality, Pedri is is a phenomenal player. You wouldn't be criticizing him, but he is kind of a shy guy. He's not. He doesn't maybe grab the games by the scruff of the neck. He, he helps him a lot to have Busquets alongside him, and that. Whereas Gavi is, is younger, but he's got superman personality. He's real spiky. He gets back, gets his foot in as well. He's been booked a few times, arguing with, with opponents. But on the ball, like at the in the stadium at the Spain game at the weekend, there was a lot of. Criticism of Luis Enrique again from the, the Madrid end of opponents who don't really like him. Like, what's he doing putting this kid into the, the squad? Why isn't he playing? Why didn't he like bring in Nacho or Lucas Vasquez? You know, why, why is he putting in Gavi instead? But his display against Italy in the first half on his debut was just unbelievable how much he understands the game, how he knows where to go, the decisions he makes. And against Sweden at the weekend, he was, he was Spain. Spain did lack a lot of uh, incision as Michael was saying you know they, they were happy enough maybe with nil all and then to win one nil but he was the guy who was grabbing the ball who was dribbling past people in his own half who was you know constructing the play putting people into pockets of space Jordi Alba a lot of the time as well and just looks fantastic the thing is you know what do you do now if you're going to play 4-3-3 you have Busquets who's you know for Spain has shown for Barca has looked you know he's been overrun quite quite often but for Spain you can see that when the the system of the team is right and the shape of the team is right. He's still, you know, peerless really in that holding midfield role. Then you've got Frankie de Jong, who's, you know, one of the biggest talents, midfield talents in world football, apparently, but hasn't shown it at Barca yet. And, and how do you, how do you put all of them into it? So that's maybe one of the, for Xavi, it's, it's one of the conundrums that he's going to face. And maybe a lot of how he'll be judged maybe, or it's a way we can look at him and go, if he, if he has clear ideas, what, what's he going to do? How's he going to, imprint his personality on it is he going to ship 
Puss gets out or, or move Frankie de Jong to the defence. Who knows? Well, uh, just to leave the Barcelona discussion behind, uh, I'll read a piece from Michael's quote on the appointment, writing that these days several major clubs have convinced themselves that they have a traditional way of playing that necessitates appointing one of their former players as coach. The results of that have been mixed, but if it's likely to work anywhere, it is at Barcelona with Xavi. I feel like we are nailed on to be uh, talking Xavi and Barcelona in the coming months, but we'll let him actually manage a game first uh, and we'll move on because... This is the Athletic Football Tactics Podcast's La Liga Fiesta. And next up, we're tackling Simeone's title defenders, Newcastle's newest enemy, Emery, and Rio going loco for Radamel Falcao. Stay right there. This episode is supported by FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the team's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher league. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenge and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. All new Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Time to talk Atleti now. Dermot, last year's title winners, of course. Uh, they've only lost one of their first 12 La Liga games, but probably two or three draws too many, you'd think. Six wins, five draws and a defeat. They're in fourth place at the moment. It's often said that winning a title is a huge challenge, defending it an even greater one. Uh, how do we rate Simeone's Atleti's start to the season? It's been quite underwhelming, really. Um, it's... They've been unfortunate with injuries. First thing to say is they've been missing a lot. You know, a lot of their the most important players. Koke was out. Lamar's been out. Marcus Llorente's been out. That was their first choice midfield last year. Trippier's now done his shoulder. Um, looks like he's out until the new year. The at the back they've had to keep changing, chopping and changing all the time as well. But it's it's a weird Atletico because it's not. You look at the squad and it's it's very dissimilar from this idea of Atletico, which you know over the last decade. You've Godin, you've Gabi, you've Raul Garcia. They're, they'll battle you. They'll be really well organised. They'll um, they'll use every dark art at their disposal in order to win games. Diego Costa, you know, that's the kind of impression that everybody has. And it came out of those two games against Liverpool. I got a little bit annoyed with um, what I shouldn't have been and, and ended up in, in Twitter spats with people about, <laughs> you know, how Klopp described Atletico and how he spoke about them was as if he was what he was watching a video of them from like two or four years ago. It wasn't like the game that he, he had just watched in front of him, or that was my impression anyway. Because you have um, Lamar, Rodrigo de Paul has come in to play make. So they can, in times in those Liverpool games and at times in, in La Liga, they've played some really nice football. They've moved the ball around really well. They're not they're not going to have 66% possession in a game. That's not going to happen. But they, they do play really neat triangles. They do move the ball fast. They switch the play. Joe Felix has been in really good form. Suarez has been scoring goals. So that part of their their team um, has worked pretty well in most games. But at the back, they've been, you know, I was going to say shambolic, but the last game, they were, they were 3-1 up against Valencia with, with a couple of minutes left, and they could see two goals, one of them to a, a free kick, that, that Hugo Duro, who's not the tallest striker in the world, you know, gets a free header six yards out to equalise in added time, which is something that hopefully myself and Mark are going to be looking at next week on the site to see, be, 
you know, how Atletico have changed and the type of goals they're conceding. Because, you know, three goals against Valencia, three against Liverpool. It's like it's the worst run um, of goals conceded in, in their last six games in Simeone's entire decade. And that's their, their Achilles heel at the minute. If they were to be able to tighten that up, I would put them ahead of Madrid as favourites for the league. But so far, they, they, they haven't been. And it, it looks like a real worry for, for Simeone at the minute. Michael, what have you made of, of Simeone's Atleti this season? It, it definitely feels like, and I agree with Dermot, if you're tuning into an Atleti game uh, with the image of Simeone's 13-14 title winners uh, in, at the forefront of your mind, you, you're going to be pretty surprised about what you see in a tactical sense. Yeah, I mean, let's start with the back three. I haven't been convinced by the way they've defended. I mean, particularly that game away at Liverpool. They lost 2-0, but it could have been much more. Um, and the scorelines from their other last six games have been 2-3, 2-2, 2-2, 3-0 and 3-3. So, yeah, it's it's a completely different side. Um, I mean, the shape has been interesting. Last year it was generally 3-5-2. Um, it's often been 3-4-3 in recent weeks. I think that's partly maybe because they've lost midfielders to injury, as Dermot says. And also they've just got more options up front than they have for, for quite a while with Correa, Griezmann, uh, Felix and of course Luis Suarez so often there's been three of them in tandem but I think it has left them a little bit um, exposed in defensive situations and yeah I think the injuries have, have played a part I think they've missed the energy of Llorente who I think had a really good season last time out um, and Lamar as well I mean probably their standout result even though Barcelona are not the side they used to be but the standout result probably the tuna whenever Barcelona and both the goals featured Suarez and, and Lamar combining. And Lamar hasn't been available in recent weeks. They haven't had that option. So, um, yeah, they haven't been convincing. I think uh, even some of their wins have been very last gasp. One of them, I think they won in the 98th minute or something. I seem to remember. Um, so, yeah, it's it's a quite an open season in, in La Liga. I mean, like you said earlier, Ali, Real Madrid are the favourites. But I think there's a few sides who... They just get themselves in in shape, particularly Atleti. If they just get themselves in shape, bring back a little bit of the uh, defensive uh, solidity they used to have. I think they've got a real chance to retain their title, which should be the first time for God knows a very long time. It definitely does feel like it's been quite a, a messy start to the La Liga season for a lot of clubs. Ironic, given the absence <laughs> of Messi for the first time in in uh, almost two decades. But uh, Mark, in terms of Atleti's unusual or surprising looseness, I feel like the underlying numbers could give a little bit of hope, a little bit of light at the end of the tunnel on that front. Yeah, no, I think that's interesting. I think, the, well, this is why, the, as we always say with the numbers, the context is key. We're still very early on in the season. And as Dermot said, that, you know, Atleti have had a lot of injuries. Um, but yeah, if you were to just sort of look at it, if you hadn't watched any of La Liga, to see who's sort of conceding the fewest shots as a sort of a proxy of who's kind of tightest at the back. Um, Atleti have conceded the fewest shots per 90 in La Liga, 7.3 per 90, which is actually fewer at the moment. I know we're still early on, but fewer than last season's title winning campaign in terms of shots conceded. But I don't know if it's just a kind of a recency thing, because as Dermot quite rightly said, they've, they've conceded 12 in their last six games in all competitions, which doesn't sound like a good defensive record. Of course it doesn't. So I guess that's the piece I think we're going to be doing, right, Dermot, to look at why that might be. So what it is, is that they're actually not conceding that many shots, but why is it that they are conceding so many goals and and dig a little bit deeper? I think the, the initial things that I've kind of looked at is that they've got a, a really bad goals per shot on target sort of ratio of any side in La Liga, the worst in, in La Liga. So 0.39, so let's say 
one in three of the shots on target they have faced have actually resulted in a goal, which is, is that just poor luck? Is that a bad trend or is that something kind of more systemically an issue? I think that's when we'll look more towards Jano Black, how he's been performing in terms of shot stopping um, and dig a bit deeper. But I, I don't want to give too much away just now because we've got a piece coming out soon. In an interesting situation in their Champions League group as well, of course, with Liverpool on, on 12 points, maximum points from their four games, Porto on five and Atleti uh, with four. So work to do there as well. Dermot, you did write a piece the other day in which you opined that they are still probably Spain's uh, best well, most likely candidates to, to go deep in the Champions League. We know that Simeone is more than comfortable in the latter stages of that particular competition. Uh, let's talk about Villarreal and Unai Emery, who himself is pretty comfortable in the latter stages of uh, European competition, more specifically the Europa League, of course. Um, a, a few weeks now since the Newcastle-Unai Emery saga ended up with Emery staying at Villarreal. What's the fallout been? It, it was a pretty emotional few days, it seemed, from the piece you wrote around the club. But with a bit, a bit of water under the bridge now, how is the dust settling and other various cliches? Yeah, it was it was just uh, very awkward for Emery. The the TV interview that he did um on the night of the the game after they'd won um when the whole day had been had been spent, you know, uh, people in England were sure, some of our colleagues were sure they'd been told that that he was definitely taken over at, at Newcastle. That was really really awkward and it didn't go down well. Fiorelli used the word family club Fiorelli is close to a family club maybe at the top of of European football because they are owned by by the president, uh, Roish. His son is the, the chief executive of the club. They own the club themselves. It, it, it's kind of a small group of people who, who are there at the top. And Emery's relationship with them had been super strong. They'd gone for him. He was their guy. They'd given him more power than coaches normally have at Villarreal over transfers and, and over everything in the club. And in a way, he, he was very close to betraying them. And I think they put the a little bit of emotional no I'm gonna say emotional blackmail mm-hmm. is not fair but they just kind of pointed out like you can't leave us like this it and, definitely and <laughs> I definitely felt that way from the quotes that you that you had in your piece it felt like a lot of um yeah a bit of guilt tripping involved so you upset people and you upset people in the in the dressing room as well maybe players are, are more able to understand you know they themselves would have to think about what would happen if Newcastle came calling for them and mm. um, but the, the reporters around the club the, the staff just a few people that that you'd know and um, were surprised that Emery was thinking about leaving again they could understand you know the, the the millions of reasons why but but also were just a little bit upset so they had a bit of a cathartic win they won that game in the Champions League then then they won in La Liga the weekend afterwards it was a decent performance it's only their third win in La Liga of the season which has been obviously a problem for them so they're everybody's trying to hoping to put it behind them and maybe just not talk about Newcastle for a while just move on and they've got big game against Man United coming up in the Champions League as well so in football people do tend to, to look forward and move on but again if you know, if we'd spoken a month ago, I would have said Emery's super solid there. He won the Europa League last year. You know, he's putting in place, you know, the foundations to go on and build something important there. Um, that's taken a step back. So things are a little bit more shaky and we'll have to see how, how it rolls out over the next, over this season. It, it is an interesting situation, isn't it? Especially because they're going well in the Champions League, top of that group, but they have got United and 
Atalanta still to play. And so those two fixtures are, are going to um, really decide on whether they go any deeper into the Champions League. They're 12th in the La Liga table at the moment, which I suppose would be an underperformance so far based on where they'd, ex- they'd expect to be. And it's a, a record where they've won three and lost three. They've drawn six. So half of their games draws in La Liga so far. And, and my automatic question when there's a team that's drawing a disproportionate amount of games is based on the performances and perhaps the underlying numbers, are those draws more likely, Dermot, do you think, to turn into wins? Or are they often the case where they're, they're sort of clinging on and they're losing draws, if you will? What's your instinct there? I, I would say wins for sure. Um, they've missed Gerard Moreno, who's you know their top scorer, got more than 30 goals last season, um, is one of the many players who were... Uh, run into the ground last year yeah. and then in the summer and have now you know had, had difficult starts to, to this season through injuries and Villarreal in some moments have looked really good I was at the Bernabeu for a game they drew nil all with Madrid but they they hammered Madrid in that game you know they, they really could have been 2-3 nil up you know the game at Old Trafford against Manchester United you know they they had maybe if Moreno was there or if somebody else was a bit more clinical they would have won that at Atletico Madrid they were 2-1 up going into uh, the 97th minute, something like that. And there's a, a comical, crazy on goal from from Mandy. There's been a couple of other times they've given away penalties, given away late goals. With Emery, there wasn't a feeling that um, things were really going that badly, that the numbers, the, the points that they had in the table weren't a fair reflection of, of how well they played. And they still kind of assumed that they were going to get back into the, the top four race. Generally, their performances have been a lot better that, than their results. And the people at the club, that's what they feel. You speak to people you know, close to the dressing room, the, the players there. They, they weren't unhappy with, with how things have been going. They just felt they'd been unlucky. And when they get their uh, Jerry Moreno back, Pareko was injured as well. Chukwese, who's an important player. When the, these guys got back, they, they felt that they would, you know, should get through their Champions League group and should move back up towards the top four in La Liga. Uh, Michael, that they are so far after a dozen La Liga games, a heavily possession-based team. And they also have the lowest PPDA number per the Opta analyst site in La Liga. That suggests a, a pretty intense press. Is that typical of Unai Emery? No, I'm not sure it is, really. I remember when he came to Arsenal in his first press conference, he said he believes in positive football and he believes in possession, he believes in pressing high. And having watched his team for just over a year, I thought that statement felt, in hindsight, more like kind of PR rather than an actual declaration of his intentions because I don't think Arsenal really were were particularly impressive in either respect. Um, but I mean, it's quite interesting. He's played a, a variety of systems in recent weeks. He's gone to kind of a box midfield at times, which which he has used. Uh, he did use a bit last season in Villarreal. Actually, I remember the best Villarreal side I've seen probably was ten years ago when they used a similar system. But I mean, he's really packing like four central midfielders into that team. Um, at times with Francis Coquelin in notionally one of the more advanced midfield roles, tucked inside from the left, which, um, yeah, he's not the most creative player I've ever seen in one of those positions. Um, yeah, I must say I haven't seen a, a great deal with him. And I wonder whether the high possession stat is partly because of the game state and they've very rarely been ahead. So they've got to kind of force the issue. They've had four nil nils. So it might be a consequence of how the games have gone rather than uh, a real uh, intention from Emery, I suppose. Their game at the Bernabeu in October, I'm going to say, was was one of the most interesting games I've been to this season because Villarreal were super well drilled, um, especially playing the ball out from the back and the, the automisms that they have and how they were going to move the ball up, up the pitch compared to Madrid, who were the complete opposite. And like Ancelotti told them, OK, we're going to press them high, we're going to run after them. But you could see Villarreal and the keeper, um, Ruli would like 
wait on the ball until Benzema or Vinicius tempt somebody out to him and then he played outside to, to Pau Torres and they'd move it up the pitch. And Madrid just fell into their trap again and again and again. It was it was almost um, embarrassing from Madrid's point of view to watch. And the, in the stadium, the fans were starting to whistle. They were starting to get on the back of the Madrid players because they could see how how Emery was just outthinking or the Villarreal team were outthinking the Madrid team. And I guess it was the same at Old Trafford. You know, they came up against a similar type of a, a team in United. But again, that day, they weren't able to take their chances down. Juma, who's been really good for them, had a couple of chances and he was a bit unlucky. But they weren't able to... There were times when they had you know wide open spaces to attack into. and But it, maybe it was people like Coquelin who were getting on the ball in advanced positions and then you know weren't able to, to do enough with it at that stage. But they looked really well drilled that day. They looked one of the best organized teams that, who knew each player knew what their job was, knew where their, their teammates were going to be when they got possession, what they were going to do. Um, which was was quite impressive, I thought. I, th- I think that's interesting as well in terms of the the overall performance of, of Villarreal versus kind of again. I always come back to the hard, cold numbers and stuff, but like that feeling that you get in terms of take from from the performance, kind of what you will when looking at the numbers. Their their performances at either end in terms of their expected goals is kind of about what you'd expect them to be overall. I know you're speaking about some chances that they might have missed sort of individually, Denver, but over the course of the, the dozen games, they are about where they should be in terms of goals or chances created and, and conceded compared with their goals. Um, I thought it was interesting what you said about kind of the the turning the sort of the high press into into a shot because I looked into their um, their high turnovers that, that do end in a shot. So high turnovers essentially being winning the ball back in there or thereabouts the final third and how many of those times uh, that you know actually ends in a shot and they've they've had just five so far this season which is the lowest of any side in in La Liga and sort of for context Real Betis have the highest on 24 so far this season so I don't know whether it kind of tallies with sort of what you're saying before Dermot in terms of they they might win the ball back but not necessarily have that kind of intensity to go and actually kind of do something quickly in transition and have that that urgency in attack is it more about again coming back to that performance of actually having dominance kind of on the ball but not necessarily being kind of peppering the goal so to speak no that is interesting almost like they're they're too controlled that they're yeah. they're following orders too much and then they're not they don't have that individual spark to, to do something that, again something to look into I haven't I haven't done a piece on them for a good while so you know mm. we'll keep in touch yeah <laughs> see about that feels like the the um fitness of Gerard Moreno his reintroduction into the team would would surely help that he is someone that gets a lot of shots off and we know him to be a, a pretty sensational finisher when he's on form uh, the final team we're going to talk about are Rio Vallecano who are managed by Andoni Iraola the listeners will know him for being almost a one club man as a player uh, a whole lifetime spent with Athletic Bilbao before uh, a sabbatical with New York City FC uh, for a season to finish. Uh, his managerial career has been a little more diverse. AEK Larnaca, his first job, then Mirandes, and now Rio Vallecano. Uh, last week, we spoke about Venezia, who'd been promoted through the playoffs in Serie B, and their Spanish equivalent this season is Rio, who won the playoffs in the Segunda. Dermot, they always feel like a fascinating club to me on so many levels. This season, no different. Yeah, it's great to have them back in, in La Liga uh, from a personal point of view, to be able to go to the games and, and to with fans back in the stadiums as well. It's been been super. And Falcao, just been an amazing story. You know, there's a lot of scepticism both inside uh, Rio's dressing room uh, and at the club and outside about whether Falcao, you know, whether it was a 
an ego signing from the president or, or what state he was going to arrive in. But he's been been super, scored some amazing goals, scored that goal against, scored within like 10 minutes of his debut, then scored a winner at San Mamés uh, against Atletico Bilbao, scored a winner against Barcelona. He's got injured again, but he's just been been really, really good. And Iraola is, you know, he's maybe the most interesting young Spanish coach. Um, you know, played under a lot of different coaches at Atletico Bilbao, including um, Marcelo Bielsa, then he has that Man City link. Larnaca is an interesting club as well because there are a good few ex-Barcelona uh, coaches and uh, directors have gone through Larnaca, um, including Jordi Cruyff, um, I'm pretty sure, who's back at, at Barca at the minute. And then you've got the, the Man City link with, with New York City as well. So I think he's he's definitely one to watch. Did really well at Mirandez, got them in, did a run in the Copa del Rey, knocked out a couple of Premier League teams, and then got Rayo up at, at the first uh, time of asking last season, and is doing really well with them. They don't play the, the typical Rayo, you know, maybe from Paco Hemes' time, people might remember, where they were super possession-based. You know, that time when they had more possession than Barca, but lost 4-0, I think, <laughs> in, in one game. And then the, the Barca coach, I think it was Valverde, maybe not Martino, got, got a lot of abuse from his own... F- fans and pundits because they'd lost the possession stats even though they'd they'd won the game and that was a, a typical Paco Hemis type of a, a thing to do Irol is more he's more out of the athletic Bilbao school maybe more Bielsa as well more direct more physical but they they go for goal they win the ball high they go straight for goal and having Falcao up front then makes it you know is, is perfect for him to, to take the chances that they make mm. what Michael or who is is standing out to you when it comes to Rio it can't just be about Radamel Falcao no, but that 1-0 win over Barcelona, I thought, um, was very typical of how they play. There was a high win with Trejo dispossessing Busquets, one pass in behind to uh, to Falcao, who scored the winner, scored the only goal. Um, and that is typical of them. They're third in, in pressures across the pitch in La Liga. Um, in terms of assists, uh, I know I've talked a lot about assists in this podcast, but only Benzema's ahead of uh, Trejo. Uh, so far this season, he's playing that number 10 role just behind Falcao. So he's had, having a very good season as well. Um, and yeah, they do seem very um, very hardworking, very energetic, forced the issue, high tempo. And uh, yeah, I think it kind of, to me, that is almost more suited to the kind of club that Rayo are than the possession style. Just uh, their, their ground and the way it's so kind of compact and old school feels like they should always be a very hardworking side, Rayo. I, I don't have too much to, to offer in terms of too much value, but I just think it's quite a fun sort of statistical quirk and something which I'm sure a lot of the listeners will hopefully enjoy hearing. Um, and I want to speak about Bebe, who um, famously was at uh, Manchester United, probably one of Manchester United's not so good signings, I think it's fair to say, but playing for, for Vallecano. Um, and he has the highest volume of shots per 90 of any forward in the top five European leagues, which I think is super interesting. He's had 10 appearances, but only one start. So he's only had 190 minutes played in, in La Liga. So seemingly comes on um, and just, I guess, shoots on sight um, at the, the nearest opportunity. I was doing something on this fairly recently where essentially he's had 6.2 shots per 90 on average and we're talking ridiculously small you know numbers in terms of minutes played but the average uh, expected goals value of his shot is 0.03 so he's having a ton of shots of really poor quality and just having a bit of a, a shoot on site which i think is sort of indicative of how we sort of think of him or thought of him at manchester united as well which is maybe not the highest quality but i just thought it was a fun sort of statistical quirk just to offer my 10 cents 
Alessandro Diamante reincarnated <laughs> and playing for, for Rio. That's it for our uh, Spanish vacation on this week's Athletic Football Tactics podcast. A huge thank you to Dermot Corrigan for joining us, to Michael and to Mark Carey as well for uh, sprinkling their expertise across this episode. Dermot's coverage of La Liga on The Athletic is absolutely recommended, appointed reading, uh, in fact. Certainly his coverage of Xavi's appointment at Barcelona has been excellent, but uh, really captures the specifics, the quirks of Spanish football, the, the emotion, uh, of course, but also the uh, the football and the tactics as well, so brilliantly. So do sign up to The Athletic if you, if you don't already subscribe, and you can read all of Dermot's writing as well as that of Mark and Michael. Theathletic.com forward slash tactics is the place to go for 30 33% off an annual subscription. I really hope you're enjoying our tour of Europe's top leagues on the pod. Next week, we're off to Germany with Rafa Honigstein. Cannot wait for that one, but it's goodbye for now. And thanks as ever for joining us on the Athletic Football Tactics podcast. The Athletic. Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic.